two men of color vanished after last being seen in the same deputy's patrol car. I knew something was wrong. My mother knows. It's the strangest case, the most unsettling case. Listen to The Last Ride podcast, part of the NPR Network. My name is Bonnie Garmas, and my book is titled Lessons in Chemistry. It's been more than a year since Bonnie Garmas published Lessons in Chemistry, and it's still receiving accolades today. The book follows Elizabeth Zott, a dedicated and hardworking chemist who finds herself tasked with hosting a cooking show in the 1960s. The book uses both humor and serious themes to achieve balance, a recurring pattern throughout the book and throughout chemistry itself. I recently spoke with Bonnie Garmus about some of the themes she wades into, like religion versus science, but we also chatted about our shared love of rowing and the lovable character 630, who is Elizabeth's loyal dog. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Okay, so we are speaking a full year after your novel, Lessons in Chemistry, was published. And I can't imagine that there are many people out there, but for people who have yet to read Lessons in Chemistry, can you give us a description of the book? Sure. Um, It's about a woman named Elizabeth Zott. Uh, She's a chemist in the late 50s, early 1960s. She becomes uh, pregnant, and because she is also unwed, she's fired, of course, immediately from her job because that's a sin. And she very reluctantly becomes the star of a TV cooking show. On that show, she's expected to teach housewives at home how to cook, but instead she teaches them chemistry. She does that because she wants to remind the women of America what they're actually made of, which is atoms and molecules, but also of their own inherent capability. In doing so, she ends up changing a nation. So this book was funny, even though the main character, Elizabeth Zott, was not one to smile. (laughs) The book was filled with humor and comic relief, but you also touched on many of these subjects, like the ones you just mentioned, you know. These topics should be taken seriously, uh, you know, a patriarchal society, ignorant biases against race or gender, pay inequality, rape and sexual abuse, religion. So talk to me about how you balanced the humor with the serious in this book. Well, that's a really good question. You know, the book is really about balance. Chemistry is the science of balance. You can't have an unbalanced molecule. And there's rowing in the book, and that's a sport of balance. You can't move a boat unless in, in a shell like a rowing shell, unless it's completely balanced. And the balance of the dark and the light in the book was something that I was that was my goal to achieve. Because let's face it, you know, life is pretty dark. And I wanted to create something that was also really entertaining or made people laugh. So we don't take ourselves so seriously that we don't think we can get past the bad parts of life because. We have to. We absolutely have to. So I wanted to create a character who kind of showed us the way. It's not like she doesn't suffer. She suffers, but she gets through it. One of the more serious topics of the book, you know, it was the question of God's existence. There was the religion versus science aspect. And I noted this quote in the book, people will always yearn for a simple solution to their complicated problems. It's a lot easier to have faith in something you can't see, can't touch, can't explain, can't change, rather than have to have faith in something you actually can. So talk to me about this specific serious topic in general, how you had to attack that. I think it's really interesting, you know, right now in the United States, you hear every time there's another shooting, you know, our lawmakers offer us prayers. 
where prayers don't actually work. Uh, if they did, there wouldn't have been any more shootings. And so it's really a book about being a realist. Elizabeth Zott is a rationalist. She's a realist. She doesn't really have time for these ideas that are more supernatural, that let people off the hook for their bad behavior. Suddenly, every sin is forgiven. You know, we're all forgiven. Well, why? I mean, if you do something bad, why not change your behavior? So she actually is asking us to do that. She's asking all of us to take a good look at ourselves and decide what we need to change, not just in society, but in within ourselves. It sounds very serious, I know, but that's where the humor comes in. <laughs> you know, I would imagine that some of the scenes in the book were a product of the time setting of the book, you know, the mid 20th century that the work world was full of idiots because they interviewed well. And of all the disciplines, you would think that scientists could weed out their own intellectual zeros. But I'm also wondering, because of what you just mentioned about the shootings and everything, is it a timing thing or is it just a humanity thing, you know, where things haven't improved exactly, but shifted somehow? You know, things are sort of alarmingly the same, but in different venues. I think, you know, I worry a lot because I think we seem to be going in a direction, at least in the United States, that's that's almost retro. It's almost reversed. Instead of making progress, we're very busy marching backwards. There are a lot of science deniers and things like that. I, it doesn't really make scientific sense. And here's the truth of science. I know that our lawmakers make all sorts of laws, and most people try to follow those laws. But the truth is we're all ruled by the laws of chemistry we don't get to change those because we want to. Those are the rules of the planet. Those are the rules of the universe. And we change every day. Our bodies change every day. Our minds can change every day. So behind the book is a general theme of change and how much we are capable of major change. We just have to go out and grab it and stop accepting the status quo. Stop accepting the fact for some reason, people say there's nothing we can do about it. There's always something you can do about it. It was interesting in the book that we got the dog's perspective too. I remember <laughs> jotting this down early as I was reading before I learned, you know, more detail about the dog's history and his thoughts on Elizabeth and Calvin and the creature. And the dog's name is 630. And we'll talk about his name in a moment. But I also... I also read some early reviews of the book that came out a year ago that took jabs at this decision. And I wanted to ask you about the idea. Why did you want to include a dog's point of view, but also you've had a year to listen to readers? What's the overall feedback? Do they like knowing 630's thoughts? 630 is the most popular character in the book by far, which really makes me laugh. And as for, you know, whether or not people are going to take jabs at that, I mean, feel free, you can. It's just that that's a decision that I made. And I wanted to do that because, in fact, animals think. And it's it's incredibly, it's just hubris for humans to continue to believe that we're the smarter species. I don't see any other species on Earth ruining the Earth, ruining the home that they that they live in. It's just us. So animals think, dogs think, they let you know they think, they can learn languages. We had a dog that understood English and German. So for us to continue to believe that we're somehow the superior species is just kind of ridiculous at this point. And so that's why, you know, we've learned that trees communicate through their roots. We tend to define intelligence by 
human definition. That's only one definition. I wanted the animal kingdom to have a shot at us in the book to let us know what they think of our really dumb decisions we make every day. So I want to talk about using numbers as names. And and I'm not exactly talking about like the sixth seat of an eight-man crew, but the dog's name was it was 630, as we mentioned. You have a dog named 99. In your acknowledgments, you thank someone called 86. Talk to me about this. <laughs> well, 99 and 86, those are two names that I got from a TV show when I was a kid. Uh, it was called Get Smart. And they were two spies. And when I had a very, a very dear friend, my best friend, and I grew up for our entire lives calling each other 86 and 99. We never stopped calling that uh, each other that well into adulthood. And she died a tragic death and accident. And I was really distraught because this was someone I really spent my life with. And in her honor, I named our new dog, our new uh, dog from, you know, used dog, uh, 99, so that I could recover that name and as a salute to my friend. But as for 630, 630's name just comes about because dogs, of course, you know, we give them names, we give cats names, we give all of our pets names, and they learn the names. And so I just thought it would be interesting for 630 to misunderstand how we got his name. He thinks that's how you name someone who joins a family. You give them a number. And I really enjoyed that, that exploring that with him. It was really fun. <laughs> how many words does 99 know? 99 does not know as many words <laughs> as our dog Friday knew. And Friday, uh, 630 was based on a dog named Friday. But uh, I would say 99 knows well over 100, maybe 200. Um, dogs are really, really smart. There was a very famous dog named Casper who was a border collie and knew over a thousand words. He lived with a clinical psychologist who was teaching him words and tracked it. Hmm. We have a cat named Cat. How boring. And she knows treat and plop and eat. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but how many cat words do you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Okay, so there was one point in the book, and I think it might have been a dream, but Elizabeth was reading Madame Bovary aloud to oh, 630, yeah. and she had explained to him that that fiction was problematic. And this is a quote, people were always insisting they knew what it meant, even if the writer hadn't meant that at all, even if what they thought it meant actually had no meaning. So now that we're, you know, we can talk about this theory with you as a published author for more than a year, has it held up? Are readers or interviewers or reviewers finding meaning where there is none? Yeah, but you know what? <laughs> Absolutely. And that is the reader's job. You know, readers get to bring whatever they want, whatever viewpoint they want, whatever biases they have, they bring it to the book and they interpret it the way they want to. You can't control that as a writer and you shouldn't control that as a writer. So I don't mind that at all, but it is, it is really funny. I won't even tell you some of the things, but you know, I know what this actually means. Oh, okay. <laughs> it makes me sound super intelligent sometimes. Like, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. But no, I mean, it's it's really great. But yes, I think of that as the reader's job to do that. Elizabeth Zott always carried a number two pencil, either behind her ear or in her bun. And while it made a pretty good weapon, you know, beating the pen <laughs> and the sword, probably, I liked when she was asked about why she uses a pencil instead of a pen. Can you talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah, pencils come with erasers. Scientists know 
that they're going to mostly have failures. It's really important to be able to accept failure as part of your life. But scientists fail every day as part of the job, because if they didn't fail every day, we wouldn't have a single disease left on earth. We would know everything. It's just not true. They have to keep searching for new answers. And so you explore a lot of different alleys and and roads, and then you find out you're on the wrong road and you start over. So if you make a mistake, you erase it. You don't write in pen. I mean, some do, I'm sure, but you don't have to write in pen. And for me, the greater meaning of that pencil, there are lots of things that happen to everybody in their life that aren't great, that are either very tragic or very painful, humiliating. And you don't want to live with those things in your soul. If you think of it as a pencil, you don't have to. You can erase it. It's not like it's gone. You can still see the outline of it, but it does not affect you and it no longer defines you. I would imagine that the best thing about writing unexpected characters, whether it's Matt or 630 or or Elizabeth herself, is that they get to say and do unexpected things. Did you find a freedom in that? Yeah, I love that. I don't write from an outline. I let the characters lead me. Sometimes they lead me and I think, wow, really? And, you know, I backtrack a little bit. Yeah, I wanted to write a book where even I was surprised because I can't be surprised. How am I going to surprise you? One group of unsung heroes in this book that seemed to stand out a bit to me were the librarians, or was that my imagination? No, (laughs) the librarian is the most important educator in the school. No, I love librarians. I have a thing for librarians because, you know, as a kid, I had a bad stutter and, um, the only, there were only two people in the world who really didn't mock me for it. One was my friend, Helen, 99. And then my other adult friend was a librarian who kind of, you know, just understood that what I was going to be was a reader. I didn't talk very well, but I could read. And to me, librarians have opened a lot of doors, you know, in my soul, in my mind. And I really appreciate them. They have a tough job. And I think even now, librarians are so incredibly relevant to society You know, the internet is one thing, a librarian, (laughs) something else completely. You are a rower. Elizabeth becomes Mm -hmm. a rower. I became a rower a couple of years ago. The section of the book I found quite profound was the comparison of life and raising kids to rowing because the rower is always situated backward in the boat. The person who made that comparison, Dr. Mason, said, both require patience, endurance, strength, and commitment, and neither allow us to see where we're going, only where we've been. So I'm not exactly asking you to compare rowing to life, but I am curious about why you love the sport. Oh, I, I, you know, I, well, I, now I've got to ask you, Beth, (laughs) what do you row? I want to know now. I'm still in a single. I'm still, I don't, I don't get out on the water enough. My daughter and I, we both at the beginning of the year, we said, okay, let's renew our membership April 1st and let's get on the water as soon as the temperature allows. And here it is April, what is today, 6th. And neither of us have renewed our membership. And I wasn't making time. I just thought, I guess maybe I don't have time to row. But after reading this book, I'm going to make renew my membership and get out there as soon as I can. But I'm just in a single. My daughter doesn't have the patience for me with her and the devil. She's been rowing for 10 years. And I've only been <laughs> rowing a handful of times, but maybe a dozen times or so. <laughs> oh, that's good, though. That's good. I mean, you know, and a single is hard. I mean, that's you balancing against yourself. That is that's a test of you. And Uh, You know, you can hide some flaws in an eight, 
not for real long, but in a single, you can't hide anything. You go, it's me, it's me, it's me. But rowing, rowing is in the book because it is the sport of balance. And it's because it's another subject I did not have to research, unlike chemistry or cooking. So um, I really love rowing for the camaraderie amongst the crew. They become like your second family for the absolute cult-like atmosphere of a crew where, you know, it gets to the point with a crew with you know them well enough, you know what they've eaten, you know everything about their personal lives, you know everything because you have to know it in order to row as one. Uh, and I really, I don't know, it's a very special sport, but it is done backwards. Is there any other sport that is done backwards? I don't know. I, I can't think of one. And it requires such a high level of cooperation between people in a boat that even if you hate everybody in the boat, you still cooperate. And I wanted to juxtapose that against the common, normal, average work situation where there's always somebody at odds with somebody else at work and they prevent work from progressing. Whereas in a boat, you do that while your boat is going to lose in front of a lot of people because you could not cooperate with your teammates. This is your first novel, but you have a creative career, you know, as a copywriter, as a creative director. When did you realize you had a novel in you? Oh, I wrote my first novel when I was five. And uh, it was really, really good. No one has snapped it up yet. It starts out with once upon a time. And then there's a sentence in the middle that I'm embarrassed by. And then it says the end. Nevertheless, it includes one illustration. (laughs) And I don't know why no one's asked to see it. I wrote another novel when I was 12. And that was 200 pages long. And my librarian put it in the school library and no one ever checked it out. Not for two and a half years. So um, that also went the way of the dodo bird. And then I wrote part of a novel that I never finished. Then I wrote another novel that got 98 rejections. And then I wrote lessons in chemistry. So you just have to kind of, I guess it's slow and steady wins the race, I guess. Um, But that's what happened. Are you working on another novel now? Yeah, I am. I'm working on another novel. It's not related to lessons in chemistry, but I'm enjoying it. Well, if you would like to send us your first novel, we will actually publish it on this post if you'd like. (laughs) You know what? I'm holding you to that, Beth. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) You know, we're nonprofits, so I can't give you any rights or anything. (laughs) Okay, forget it. (laughs) You know, I often ask authors if they have a hope that readers will take away from the book. And and since this is a full year after publication, do you have a a continued hope or, or has your hope changed? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I have a hope that people will continue to see themselves in the book, um, as so many have. I think all of us have a little bit of Elizabeth Zott of fed upness in our souls, where we do want something to change. What Elizabeth Zott is trying to impart is that you need to change yourself before you can change something in society. Take yourself seriously, take your progress seriously, and then go forth and change what you see needs changing. But I think my hope is in the coming year that more and more people will hear and embody that message. And I'm really pleased and honored to say that I hear from people all over the world every single day who have actually made very profound changes in their lives because they read this book, which is such an honor for me to even think it would have that kind of impact. But it's been really great, honestly. It restores your faith in humanity. (laughs) 
Well, the book is Lessons in Chemistry. Bonnie Garmus, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Beth. That was Bonnie Garmus, author of the book Lessons in Chemistry, which was published by Doubleday. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and as part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Stasser and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.